The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So today is Earth Day, and I thought I would spend some time reflecting on some of the teachings of um, the Buddha that may have some something to offer us in the, uh, the situation we find ourselves in with our planet. I think um, at least recently there was a there was a um, a report published um, where the scientists are really trying to um, indicate that there's unanimity or uh, that there's a unanimousness of opinion that our climate is changing and it is human caused and that human action is necessary to shift the unfolding consequences that seem to be happening. And so if we think about the um, exploration of human action, this is, uh, this is a whole a core of what the Buddha talked about. He talked about skillful action and unskillful action and um, how to uh, explore and discern what skillful action is and what unskillful action is. And the key for the Buddha, I mean, at the time of the Buddha, 26, 25, 2600 years ago, um, you know, they didn't really, uh, there weren't so many people on the planet. (laughs) Um, And yet he uh, highlighted and pointed to three factors or three qualities of mind that um, create human suffering, that, in, that incline human t- us towards human suffering, both our own suffering and, and the suffering of others. And those three qualities are greed, aversion, and delusion. And the, um, the aspects of greed and delusion in particular, I think, are... Um, well, and aversion. I mean, aversion is in there too. In terms of, um, you know, the whole the whole of the systems of the way things are put into place in our society, have kind of systematized these three qualities. You know that we um, um, the Buddha. One thing the Buddha pointed to is a, a kind of core delusion that having what I want will make me happy having things, having pleasant things, that that is where happiness comes from. And it's, uh, it's a human delusion, this, this delusion. It's not specific to cultures. It's not specific to individuals. It seems to be shared by humans, maybe even by mammals or even by animals altogether, that the, you know, the way to be happy is to get what I want. And certainly there is um, evidence that that is true um, as we um, go through our lives and find ourselves getting what we want and having it and seeing, oh, that feels good, you know. There's, There's a number of things about that that feel good. You know, we get something we like, there's the pleasure of that. That's one piece of it. 
um, you know, we could take something simple like um, um, having something, some pleasant food or something. You know, we, we get, if we, if we want it and we get that thing, we get the pleasure of that experience. The pleasure of the taste, the pleasure of the sense contact. So that's one aspect of the happiness that comes from having what we want, is the pleasure that comes from, from that experience. Another part of the pleasure that, com- that comes is, uh, I think, related to a sense of control. I can do this. I can accomplish this. I can take the actions that I need to get what I want. And so this, this kind of pleasure is perhaps more obvious in, in some of the larger kinds of um, uh, things that we want, that we accomplish, like getting getting a, a job that we want or something. You know, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of of control that that comes with that. There's a pleasurable feeling to that. The sense of I can do this. That feels good. And then there's another aspect that is not so obvious to us. I think the the most obvious thing is the is the pleasure that comes from the having you know, the, the actual sense pleasure. Maybe a little less obvious, but still apparent, is the pleasure that comes from the control and the pleasure that also comes from ideas about the having. So, for instance, having a new job, for instance. You know, there is some pleasure in that, but most of us, I think, would say that the pleasure does not lie in the actual activities of the work. Many of us would say that. I mean, I, I happen to be in a pretty fortunate situation in terms of my livelihood. And large aspects of my livelihood, I really enjoy. I really enjoy meeting people one-on-one and talking about the Dharma with them. I don't particularly enjoy the many meetings I have to attend. You know? So, so there's, there's aspects of the work that... Um, that we enjoy and aspects of the work that we don't particularly enjoy. But largely, I think, some of the enjoyment that we get from having something like that is that we, um, there are ideas we have around it. You know, there's the idea of this is supporting me, this is providing livelihood. There's the idea, perhaps, of how we may be contributing to something. And so some of the pleasure comes from not from the direct experiences that we have, but from ideas about, about things. And then um, there's another part of the pleasure that's really even less obvious to us, and that is um, when we want something, there's a feeling of kind of dissatisfaction that happens when we um, have that wanting the wanting itself, as soon as wanting comes, there's an immediate sense of there's a lack. Something's wrong, something's off. I need this thing to fill up this lack. And so that, uh, that wanting itself doesn't feel so good. And um, when we get what we want, that wanting goes away. And that is... Uh, actually a big part of the reason why getting what we want feels good. Because the feeling of that whole, of that lack goes away. Now, I think one of the um, 
core insights that the Buddha had around that, that feeling of lack. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, um, I mean, there's different kinds of wanting, so I, wanna, I want to uh, kind of um, clarify a little bit, because, I mean, there, there are, the word wanting um, covers a range of experiences, from a sense of, I have to have that, my life is not going to be okay if I don't have that, um, a kind of a, a rigidity about needing something, to uh, kind of an aspiration, a wish to head in a certain direction. You know, none of us would be engaged in um, any kind of a, uh, a spiritual exploration if there weren't some aspiration or some kind of wanting to understand ourselves, a wanting to be um, more peaceful. And so that's also a kind of wanting. Um, that. I think is a is a kind of a wanting that heads us in a more skillful direction, and so the the um, the exploration of the wanting. Um, I I think the the Buddha would encourage us to look at all wantings, to look at any time we want something, and then to to look at whether there is that form of greed or aversion around the wanting or confusion. There can be around wanting a sense of generosity or of you know, wanting to offer something uh, or of compassion, of wanting to support or help someone. So there can be skillful motivations around wanting as well. Wanting to help the planet. <laughs> this could be a kind of wanting. <coughs> um, and so the, uh, the wanting that creates this sense of lack um, and the um, happiness that comes from that freeing from that lack is, I think, a large part of the suffering that we um, kind of find ourselves entwined in. Because as we engage in this, I mean, just on an individual level, if we just think about ourselves, and then we'll extrapolate to society in a minute, and if we just think about ourselves, when we get what we want, the wanting goes away, the feeling of control feels good, the having feels good, and um, yeah, there's some happiness there. And in fact, the Buddha doesn't deny that. He says, yes, there's a form of happiness there. What he, do, what he does say, however, is that the delusion that's embedded in that is that this is the best kind of happiness there is. That this is the place, this is, this is how, uh, how we can, um, or let's say this is as good as it gets, this kind of happiness. It's as good as it gets. Having what I want, over and over again, having what I want. Because the, the, what seems to happen to us is that we get something, and I know you'll all recognize this pattern, we get something. And the first glow of that, you know, it fades. And we find ourselves in a place where the, the kind of, the happiness of that becomes maybe more neutral, or perhaps it disappears entirely, and there's no happiness around it at all. I mean, certain happinesses have a lingering effect, like having a job perhaps has a lingering kind of happiness. We can, we can keep reminding ourselves, this is providing livelihood, this is supporting my ability to have 
um, food and uh, a place of shelter. So, you know, we can remind ourselves of that, but just, you know, reflect on how, how long that actual happiness lasts. After a while, we have to actually remind ourselves, right? Because we get caught in the, in the details of the, of the job or the, um, <coughs> the conflicts that happen there. And it's like no longer just like this great happy thing. It's like, oh, I have to go to work again today. So what happens then is that there's no longer that feeling of that rush of pleasure, that place of happiness where we think, yes, this is it. This is what life is about, having this kind of feeling. This is where happiness is. And so that initial rush is gone, and we start looking for, well, where can I get another one of those? And so we're on this cycle thinking, well, I guess I have to find something else to, um, to get so that I can have that feeling again. <clears throat> and so we end up in a cycle, in a loop of getting something, feeling a hit of pleasure, having that fade, and then kind of our minds go, subconsciously perhaps, our minds go, well, when was I last the most happy? Oh, right, when I got what I wanted. Oh, let me want something so I can get it. And then we're back on this cycle. So we end up kind of caught in this cycle of wanting and having as a way to be happy. And think of this now magnified by 7 billion people all wanting to have what they want. And the systems that have been put into place to affect that, the resources that have been consumed to affect that. And we end up where we are with exorbitant emissions in the atmosphere, um, creating global warming, creating conditions that will almost certainly lead to suffering in some form or other. My understanding from this report the scientists gave the other, the other um, week was that um, we have about maybe 10 or 15 years of a window, perhaps, to radically turn things around. Other than that, there are definitely going to be some major impacts, you know, rising sea levels. Um, You know, this whole area is like only, what, 10 feet above sea level. So who knows how, you know, much water will be here in 100 years. Now, um, so this, this cycle of wanting, this cycle of, essentially it's greed and delusion combined. Because the greed, the greed kind of gets us wanting something pleasant. The delusion is that's where happiness can be found. The delusion is that's as good as it gets. And so that, that is how we have, as human beings have largely lived our lives and constructed our societies, our communities. The Buddha points to a completely different approach to happiness. He actually says that this cycle of wanting immerses us in a kind of a treadmill that is very unsatisfying when we actually look at the experiences that are involved in it. It's the treadmill of wanting and uh, having. That confusion around 
um, happiness coming from getting what we want, reinforcing the delusion that this is as good as it gets. The Buddha, in his own exploration, began to look at this cycle. And when he, with mindfulness, turned towards his experience, it's my, my understanding of his, his, uh, his teaching, that he began to see that the wanting itself, as I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, the wanting itself doesn't feel good. And our confusion is that in order for that wanting to go away, we think we have to have what we want. That this is kind of the driving force behind that treadmill, is this, this wanting and the unpleasantness of wanting and thinking, the delusion that in order for that wanting to go away, I have to have what I want. As he began exploring the wanting and his teaching, it really encourages us to look at this kind of want. Craving is another word for it. Perhaps I'll use craving to explore this craving to have something. He uh, pointed to the fact that craving itself is an impermanent phenomenon. And when craving goes away, there is a different kind of happiness that arises. A happiness of letting go. A happiness of release. I've experienced this kind of release. One, one of the first times it was so clear to me, just a simple looking at wanting. I was on retreat and I was looking at wanting around looking at people. I wanted to, to look at people. We had been instructed to not look at people. And, and I was, it was a three-month retreat. It's like, not look at people for three months, you know. I was like, you know, okay, I'm not going to look at people. And I was like, you know, head down. And every time somebody walked by, I'd be like, oh, I so want to look at them. Nope, nope, not going to look at them. And after a couple weeks of this, I finally like, got the idea. It's like, oh, wanting is happening. Maybe I should look at the wanting as opposed to like, trying to shut the wanting down or, or not. Um, you know, I was kind of using aversion to control that wanting. And finally, I, I recognized, well, let me look at the wanting itself. Feel that. Feel that experience. It took a couple of weeks for me to think, to realize that. Oh, that's what the Buddha said. We should look at the wanting. So I began exploring the feeling of the wanting itself. It didn't feel good. It had a kind of a feeling of a pull towards the thing that I wanted. Like, you know, as soon as I would see somebody, there'd be like this tractor beam of like, look, 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 you know, like feeling of being pulled to that. And as I just explored it and watched it, I began to recognize that when the... Because uh, I was often doing walking outside, so I wasn't around very many people, which actually helped me in this exploration. Because it was like I would be happily walking away, you know, just doing my back-and-forth walking. And then as soon as somebody appeared in my field of vision, be like, oh, this clutching and this, this pull to look at that person. And I would watch that pull. I didn't actually act on the wanting. I kept my eyes down, but it wasn't that force. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. It was a, what does this wanting feel like? So I was exploring the wanting itself and watched the wanting kind of get strong as the person got to a much easier place. I, like, I didn't have to turn my head. All I had to do was lift my eyes and look at the person. Boy, that was, that was tempting, you know. So, um, I watched the wanting get strong, and then the person like would walk up and then up some stairs and into a door, 
the wanting would vanish. In a split second, the wanting to see that person was gone. And that feeling felt like being released from a vice grip. Way more satisfying kind of release than the having the few seconds of pleasure of seeing what somebody looked like. So this uh, teaching that the Buddha encourages us to, to explore is to look at our wanting. To, and this, I think, really translates into our consumption. You know, how much do we actually need to consume? When I was in college, uh, I read a book. Uh, it, was in an, uh, it was either in an anthropology or a social sciences class. It was uh, reflections on the planet and, um, and um, the, the, the book there, I can't remember the exact quote and I've gone back to try to find it but I can't find it anymore but it's something along the lines of the, you know, the planet and this was like in the 70s, you know, even then, I mean, well, Earth Day began in the 70s so, you know, there was some sense of the, the problems that we were facing, are facing and um, at that point, the, the person who wrote the textbook said something like, yes, there are systems in place that kind of um, solidify this consumption. He said, and yet all it would take would be for every, every person to have the understanding that this kind of consumption is not helpful and to shift their actions that it can be a kind of an individual action that will ripple out. And so we can make this reflection, looking at what, what do we truly need versus what is something that we want just because it's possible to have it. Now, it, it is challenging. I mean, just the other day I bought a papaya in the, in the store, and it's like, oh, right, that came from Hawaii. You know, it's like... I had been trying over the last year or so to look at where produce is coming from so that I'm not contributing to the um, carbon emissions that are shipping produce all over the world. I succumbed to that papaya. (laughs) It's like, okay. And yet we can can reflect on these things and um, um, look at what do we really need versus what what is a desire. What, what do we want? And so this is one of the reflections, I think, that the Buddha would encourage. If he were alive in this day, I think he would really encourage this, this kind of reflection. Not only for our planet, but also for our own happiness. That, um, you know, looking at, at wanting and, and kind of being on that wheel, that cycle of wanting and having leaves us in a place of instability and agitation as opposed to ease and peace. The Buddha said peace is possible through this release, this relaxing of this craving. Another teaching I think that's relevant for us um, is uh, a reflection on looking at how our actions impact ourselves and others. To his own son, 
his own son at seven years old, he gave the teaching, before you act, think about will this cause suffering for yourself or another or both? While you're acting, think about, reflect on, will this cause suffering for self or other or both? And in the, in the before case, he says, if, it, if you see on reflection that it's going to cause suffering, don't do it. If you see on reflection that you don't see it's going to cause suffering, by all means, engage in that. But then look while you are acting. Is it causing harm? Be aware. Is there suffering happening as a result of your actions? And if it is, then stop doing that. And likewise, after you've done an action, reflect, has it caused harm? Has it created suffering for self or other or both? And if it has, then make amends. Undertake a restraint of that action in the future. So this reflection, the Buddha is asking us not just to look to our own happiness, but to the happiness of others. To, this, uh, to the non-affliction, to, the, uh, to not engage in behaviors that would create affliction for others. Now again, this, um, you know, one of the things I think that is challenging for us around something like um, um, climate change is that it's harder to see, or you know, the situation in general, the planet it is, it's, it's it's, it's harder to see moment to moment the suffering that's resulting from choices like this. You know, buying that papaya, you know, it's like the papaya's already here. You know, what, it, is it just going to rot? You know, so, you know, it's harder to see the, um, the impact of non-consumption, how that does change things. So an example of how this worked, I'm told, I think this is right, I think this is the right um, story, that um, consumers began to get very um, um, alarmed about the number of growth hormones in milk and um, began to stop purchasing that kind of milk. In fact the consumers at Walmart decided to stop purchasing that kind of milk. And so Walmart began losing money on milk that was not being purchased and decided to stop stocking that kind of milk, which led... It was, it was actually... My understanding is it was Walmart's shift that led to a, a massive shift in the industry because Walmart like has massive distribution, massive... you know power in the, in the consumer cycle. And so small actions of choice like that can impact big changes, can affect big changes. So it's, it's, um, it's challenging to keep remembering. I mean, to look, you know, it's like I'd been doing pretty well with, uh, with the produce and I did succumb to the papaya. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's challenging to see that this kind of action does have a kind of a ripple effect of suffering on our planet, on humanity, on others. So this is, this is, um, this is our challenge, that we, 
we have to use our reflection essentially, our reflective capacity of mind to recognize the harm that's being done to our planet and to others in response, in, in you know, kind of unfolding from that. <coughs> so the Buddha in his teaching there to his son encouraged him to look at his, his motivations. You know, look at, is, is the um, intention greed, aversion, or delusion that, 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 that essentially looking at the results of the action, looking at the action, looking at whether it's going to have consequences of suffering, that it helps us to understand when we're acting out of greed, aversion, and delusion. And this, this, um, this can really be a very deep reflection because there are times when we act skillfully or, 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 or engaged in action that seems to be on the surface of it or even several level, levels down to be a wholesome action. And yet, um, suffering happens. Now, the, the kind of surface level reflection might be, well, so suffering happened here, but my intention was good. So it's not my fault, it's the other person's karma, or it's, you know, it's the other person's uh, responsibility for um, dealing with the consequences because I had in- skillful intentions in that action. What I'd like to propose is that this teaching, this simple teaching to his son, actually helps us to uncover, perhaps, things that we don't understand. Helps us to uncover hidden delusion that if we see and reflect on, oh, this situation caused suffering even though my intention was good, what is it that I don't understand about that situation? Is there something for me to learn here? Not as a way to judge ourselves or, or be... Um, harsh on ourselves, but as a way to open our hearts and to grow, to understand something that perhaps we didn't understand. So, um, as an example of this kind of thing that, um, I've told this story quite a bit, so many of you have probably heard me offer this story. It's about uh, a young boy who um, was a budding naturalist. And he had a collection of chrysalids, of um, butterfly um, cocoons, whatever they're called, <laughs> chrysalids. And, um, and he was anxiously waiting for these um, butterflies to emerge from his chrysalid co- collection. And he was um, uh, watching one day and saw one of the chrysalids begin to crack open and he watched the butterfly begin to emerge from the, uh, the, the cocoon and watched it kind of struggle with its wings to push the crack open and its abdomen distended and there was all this fluid that pumped out and, and the, the boy was watching and it's, he watched the, the whole process and then the butterfly you know, flew away. But he had some, apparently, some sense of compassion for the struggle of that poor butterfly as it was getting out of its cocoon. 
And as the next few chrysalids began to crack open, he decided to make himself useful and spare the butterflies of that suffering. And he eased open the cracks a little bit so they didn't have to work so hard. And what happened is that the, the butterflies kind of slid out of the cocoons, walked around on the ground for a little while, and then dropped dead. Because the uh, process of their emerging from the cocoon was necessary for them to have the fluid go over their wings, which enabled the wings to open and fly. So this was something that this boy who became a naturalist, a famous naturalist, David Brower, um, was talking about into his 70s that intentions that seem to be kind can be the reverse of kind. Now, it wasn't that he was intentionally trying to harm them. In fact, he thought he was trying to help them. And he, had, he didn't know something. He didn't have some information which I'm sure he learned very quickly, this information. And so one way to explore this, um, looking at how do our actions impact people and others, is when we see suffering happening, to look at what is it that I don't understand? We are now, as a society, beginning to understand very clearly that the rising carbon levels are increasing the planet's Um, temperature and so now that we understand that can we use that as a basis for our choices and our actions we didn't know that when the industrial revolution began and so many systems have fallen into place as out of that and yet now I think it's up to us to begin to shift the systems. So looking at where suffering happens and using it to help us understand something that we might not know. I'll I'll mention one more piece or a couple more and then see if there's comments. Um, kind of along this line of looking at how our actions impact others. The Buddha um, had another teaching story about acrobats. And um, there was a young acrobat, you know, a junior acrobat and a master acrobat, and they were talking about their tricks that they were doing that day. And the, um, the master acrobat was saying to instructing the junior acrobat, you watch out for me and I'll watch out for you and that way we will safely um, come down from our tricks on the bamboo pole. And um, the junior acrobat said, forgive me master, but I think if I look after myself and you look after yourself, we will come down safely. And the Buddha actually affirmed both that in looking out for ourselves we end up looking out for others and he encourages mindfulness of our actions and if we look out for ourselves with respect to um, this whole cycle around wanting and having we will start to see it benefits us to let go to 
to um, to not necessarily act on all of those wantings, to reflect on what we actually need. So that looking out for ourselves, it supports others in that way. Being mindful of our own choices. Being mindful of um, not following through on actions that would create harm for ourselves or for others. And the other side, he affirmed, in um, acting skillfully towards others out of a motivation of non-harming, out of motivation of kindness, out of motivation of compassion. He said we also protect ourselves. We protect ourselves from remorse, regret. We protect ourselves from uh, others' anger. We protect ourselves from loss. So the uh, both sides of this equation, looking out for others, we look out for ourselves. Looking out for ourselves, we look out for others. It's kind of a, a way, in a way, a teaching on interdependence, this teaching around the acrobats, that we are dependent on each other. We protect ourselves and protect others by protecting ourselves. There's a, um, a saying around the, um, the precepts, the, the engagement in non-harmful conduct of harmlessness, that in um, um, acting from that place of non-harming, we offer ourselves the gift of blamelessness, the bliss of blamelessness, it said. And we offer others the gift of fearlessness, that they do not need to be afraid in our presence. And so that's an example of how this uh, reciprocal um, interdependent um, actions work. And then the, uh, another piece that um, I felt speak, spoke to me as I was reflecting on the Buddhist teachings and how it might re- relate to uh, thinking about our planet on Earth Day is um, the teaching around compassion and bearing witness. Um, our practice in looking at our own experience is to bear witness to our own suffering, to open to it, to not resist it, to, uh, to meet, to, to recognize, yes, this is suffering. To have an open-hearted relationship to suffering brings a, a, a possibility for skillful action around that suffering rather than habitual action out of greed, aversion, or delusion. And so the, um, the bearing witness to suffering, just simply being present for it, has a very healing effect. And I've seen this in being able to be present for others who are suffering, that the ability to be with somebody who's suffering without either trying to fix them or change them or um, uh, 
uh, or flee from myself from their suffering can have a very healing effect. And I think this kind of witnessing is going to be called for in the coming years. This kind of being able to be present for the suffering of displaced populations, of hunger, and to, to not uh, cultivate anger and aversion around it, but to cultivate compassion, generosity, and caring in response to that. If we, um, you know, the, the whole systems of food distribution, well, that's one of the big things that um, people predict around global warming. And, you know, the whole, you know, many, many people may die of starvation in the, as this shifts. And so both the, um, the bearing witness to the suffering there and also what action can we take skillfully to, uh, to meet that suffering. This for me is a big uh, part of my own um, work here is to to not deny what's coming and to uh, prepare in a way for my for the for for my heart to be open to what will happen. So, any thoughts, any reflections? Very timely. For the past couple weeks, I've been thinking about my commute to this session on Tuesday mornings. I've been doing it most Tuesdays for about four years. And I drive solo, like so many thousands of others in the Bay Area. I could take the train from Sunnyvale to Redwood City. One of them arrives at 9.19, so that's a little late. (laughs) (laughs) The previous one arrives at (laughs) 8.51. That's eh, not too bad, but uh, I would have to, you know, probably stop at Pete's and get a coffee or something. (laughs) to fill that time between the train station and here, assuming I were walking. I also have to figure out how to get to the train station on the other end. I could take a car. I could take a bike. I don't know what my share of the carbon emissions from the train would be me, you know, would would represent me. I do have some idea what the carbon emissions for driving are at least a rough estimate. And having it gone this far, and I need to go a lot farther, um, or I want to go a lot farther, I'm really stuck on the inconvenience of taking the train. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not asking for an answer. I don't have my own answer. Well, look, look around the inconvenience and what's... You know, so again, the Buddha asks us to reflect and to experience the, 
you know, the holding, the, the, um, the satisfaction that comes from having convenience. Uh, really observe it. And, you mm-hmm. know, there, there can be trade-offs, right? There can be trade-offs. Um, uh, you know, maybe one thing we could think about is, like, is there anybody else from Sunnyvale here? <laughs> <You know? laughs> anybody else? There, there used to be, yeah. actually, someone who came pretty regularly, too, from Sunnyvale, and I never brought this up. Then. Yeah, yeah, and so that, that kind of thing might be interesting to, to begin to uh, in institute here. You know, can we create carpool kinds of, <laughs> kinds of situations? Um, and, yeah, I mean, but to, to look for, your, for yourself at the... What, what is that inconvenience? You know, what is the inconvenience? What is, that, what is, the, what is the feeling there? What is it that you want around that? You know, what is, what, is it... Is it, um, is it time that's the inconvenience that you would be using that time for something else? Um, yeah, so, so reflect Not on... in my case. Yeah, so reflecting on, <laughs> on that kind of thing. Um, um, ex- and also reflecting, too, on the possibility of, of, you know, while riding on the train, you might have the opportunity to do something... Oh, I don't know. Read a book or um, something like that. Uh, you are also potentially not stuck in traffic if there's an accident on the freeway. I mean, so there's some other kind of uh, trade-offs there. Um, so yeah, exploring exploring these. I mean, if that's where you're kind of stuck, is that feeling of inconvenience? What is inconvenience? Look at that. Yeah, it. I. Don't know for sure, and I will look at it some more, but it's partly lack of control. Yes. You know, making the change means stepping out into some arena where I don't have the same kind of control and predictability. Yeah, and so that's a very interesting piece to explore, because that whole notion of control is a big area of um, delusion. I mean, you know... <laughs> you think you have control when you get in your car and yeah, drive Yeah, I thought on it was only greed. <laughs> you think you have control. I mean, but actually, you know, more people, I think, die on cars on the freeway than die on a train. I mean, now that the, uh, the um, you know, the accidents on trains are more spectacular, and yet the, you know, the, the, the statistics of control on the freeway it's an illusion of control. So, you know, there's, there's definitely... Especially this morning. <laughs> yeah. So these are, these are great things to reflect on. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it might be interesting. I'm not sure of how to affect something like this here, but um, I will think about it. Um, how to, re- you know, see if we can come up with some ride-sharing kind of... Maybe on our website there could be a ride sharing. Maybe there there might even already be. That's a be. really neat idea. Yeah, yeah. Because it would probably have more promise for the evening sessions where there's yes. there are bigger bigger numbers. communities. Yeah, yeah. And pass the mic back. I'm one of those frustrated unanimous scientists, and I think in general we do a terrible job of communicating to people exactly what's going on. We do a much better job at communicating in a really technical way among ourselves. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, since I'm new to this, what 
sort of like does Buddhism have to share on how to get more skillful and helpful communication about, about communicating. Yeah, I've reflected about this a little. I've reflected about this. Oh, about a year ago, I was talking to a friend about just this question. Um, there are some. There are some things. Um, I think having people. I mean, it, delusion is really the key um, in terms of you know, delusion is um, so potent of a force in our minds. Uh, the sense of it's not my responsibility, um, or the, um, um, the the denial of change. Um, you know, so the the whole sense of it. You know, it not necessarily being human. Um, so, so delusion is is a piece of the puzzle there to begin to to help people recognize the delusion. But I think um, um, you know, in terms of changing behavior, uh, communication. You were asking about communication. Um, You know, I'm not sure. Um, the Buddha really encouraged us to look at... He, he encouraged us to look, to observe. Um, and that, for me, has been a huge shift around this whole um, uh, kind of complex of greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, that I've begun to see just how deeply embedded they are in my own mind. And so something about... Um, um, and, and how I'm and thinking about how did the Buddha communicate this? He communicated it partly by pointing to the drawbacks of continuing to engage in the way that you have, but but not just abstractly. So pointing to, you know, yes, see where you benefit. So this teaching around wanting, for example, the, the, there's a, a three-part teaching around that. I don't know if this will be relevant. I'm kind of speaking off the top of my head. Um, where he said, yes, look at, look at the satisfaction you get from having what you want. And then um, see just how far that satisfaction actually extends. Um, so he's, he started us from where we are and then said, and look a little further. What, what happens as you actually explore that satisfaction? How satisfying is it really? Um, and then um, to begin to understand the drawbacks of that kind of satisfaction, to point to how um, we are suffering ourselves in the process that's a that's a big part of that teaching, but it, but it's also the self and other exploration. Um, so to to look at the drawbacks, but he also does speak about the benefits of the shift. So um, how the heart he he points to a deeper kind of happiness that's possible 
when we release that wanting. And so I think both sides of that, pointing to the drawbacks of continuing along the further course, although I understand that that tends to be hard. I mean, people, that tends to hit delusion kind of hard in a lot of cases. You know, it's like... um, looking at the drawbacks it's like you know it's like that I don't want to hear the drawbacks you know looking at the positive side I mean you know both sides of it um to to say well you know on this in this case of wanting you know this kind of happiness you're going after it's a lesser kind of happiness there's a much greater happiness to be found and so pointing to the the joy of an open heart the joy of the connectivity the joy of uh, release the joy of not being caught in this agitated cycle. So pointing to that side of it. So you know to to, to find ways also to point to the benefits of the shift, um, and that that takes I think some greatness of mind <laughs> to to make that that shift individually because we are so and this is this is another place I think the Buddhist teachings are relevant we are so short-sighted about where our happiness comes from and I think in this case in terms of the climate change you know we are so short-sighted about our own um, you know satisfaction in life it's like just this kind of reflection on going to um, taking the train or taking the car um, that you know that if we if we really could see the impact of taking the car versus taking the train what would we choose Um, so yeah I mean it's it's uh, I'm not sure I've really answered the question but I I, that's a good question to reflect on I'll I'll think about that Um, there's a, a really interesting book that explores this it's by a man called Bob Doppelt I don't know if you've heard of him it's called From Me to We um, which is essentially this reflection of looking at our, our the impact of our actions in community um, and, and that uh, it explores this kind of communication question so and we need to stop so happy Earth Day